Thank you for the day. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 11:29. Been here for quite a few weeks, and several verses surrounding this. Uh, somebody want to read verse 29 again? Our focus has been the middle part of the verse where Jesus says, learn of me. So the question we've asked almost every week for the last several weeks, is there any better example than Jesus? No. He's the perfect uh, example. Uh, he's the perfect pattern for our lives. Uh, if you want to know about holiness, we look to him. Uh, obedience, we look to him. And so nobody compares to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said, learn of me. I don't know for sure if there's any connection here, uh, but one thing that always impressed me uh, about the transfiguration, uh, when Moses and uh, Elijah showed up there along with Jesus, uh, Peter uh, said, Lord, uh, should we build some tabernacles, some tents here? And they fell, uh, God called to sleep over them. And when they woke up, the only one they saw was Jesus. And I heard one preacher say years ago that his thought was that God wanted them to focus on him, not on Moses, not on Elijah. That's not to say they were not good men of God, but were they perfect? No, only Jesus fits that bill. We're looking at Christ as our example and imitating Christ. We looked at seven things so far. First of all, it assumes you're born again. Second of all, it signifies that we cannot govern ourselves and we cannot live according to our own will. Uh, the third thing, uh, we don't have the right because we're not qualified uh, to rule others. The fourth thing is uh, true Christianity is very strict and very exacting. Now, let me, let me camper just for a second. I know we did it a week or two ago, but, you know, we're living in, in a time uh, where a lot of Christians are involved in loose living. And that's not biblical. It's simply not biblical. But I also want you to understand, we don't live by these precepts and, and commands because we have to. We do it. Why? Because we want to. That's the difference, okay? We're not trying to earn our salvation. But true Christianity is a narrow road. Jesus said there are two roads to take, the wide or the narrow, and the Christian walk is a narrow a narrow road. The fifth thing, it implies that no matter who we are, everybody has a blemish. And we, if you're like me, you've got more than just one. Uh, the sixth thing, uh, because Christ is our a pattern, he is transcendent in his holiness. It's above everything. Nothing compares to his holiness. But also, as we imitate Christ, uh, we have to understand uh, that sanctification and justification, obedience, are not means of salvation. They are the result or the evidence of our salvation. So again, and I can't emphasize this, while we do not work for our salvation, Paul said we're to work out our own salvation. And once we're saved, there ought to be some evidences in our lives that Christ lives inside us. And if there are no evidences such as, such as sanctification, oh, if they're not there, the implication is we've not been born again. So there has to be evidence of being in Christ. So again, when it comes to imitating Christ, that for the child of God is not optional. It is absolutely necessary. We are to imitate Christ. Now, we also mentioned uh, last week talking about Christ being our example, that not everything that uh, Christ did are for us to imitate. And we're just going to run through them real quick. Uh, some of the miracles he did, only Christ can do them. Uh, the works he did as mediator. There's only one mediator between man and God. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Okay, so we can't imitate that. Uh, he also fasted for 40 days and uh, 40 nights. Uh, God does not expect us to do that. He also walked on water. Anybody tried that lately? <laughs> no, uh, because only God can do that. But he also spent a whole night in prayer. Now, by the way, again, I mentioned this a week or so ago. I have been in service with the people who have tried that. But when he said he spent a whole night in prayer, what do you think he did? What do you think he did? 
Now, thank you. He spent all night in prayer, not coffee breaks, not taking 30 minutes for a sandwich or taking a break. He spent all night in prayer. But there are also some things he did that were sort of cultural. Uh, you know, being a Jew, he was circumcised. Uh, again, uh, he didn't have to be, but he did it uh, because he didn't come to do away with the law. And that was certainly in effect when Christ was born into this world, Christ child. But he also uh, kept the Passover. Uh, now, again, uh, he did that because he didn't come to destroy the law. So then there are some places, uh, the things in Christ's life we are to imitate. Uh, first of all, those things that are moral duties that we have that involve all mankind. Now, also understand these are uh, not extraordinary, they're not temporary, but the whole idea is if we love God with all of our hearts and we love our neighbors as ourselves, we will imitate that in our life because he did that. He showed it to those he came in contact with. But also the second thing, uh, when it comes to being just a good citizen, uh, Jesus as a child at 12 years old, the only record we have of that, but he obeyed his parents. Uh, he and Peter had a discussion about paying taxes. Uh, did Jesus refuse to, pay, refuse to pay taxes? No, he paid taxes. Again, not that he had to, but to you know, show that we ought to be good citizens. But the, the third thing about that is we need to be about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I don't think I've become, I have been any more aware of that uh, than the last two elections in our nation. Our, our nation has gone away from God so much. And, you know, you don't change people by voting. And, I, and again, we need to vote. No, don't, say, don't you go home and say, my preachers don't vote. No, you need to vote. But we change people's lives by the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to be sharing the gospel to a lost and a dying world. But the third thing is, we've got to do what's right and what's needful. On several occasions, Jesus uh, did some good works on the Sabbath. And what did the Pharisees think about that? It's wrong. Yeah, don't do that. And she said, look, if you had a sheep that was uh, uh, in a ditch, would you not, or in a, would you not pull him out? And what's the answer? Show you what. How much better is it to help a man or a woman? So doing the right thing when it's needful, no matter what other people might think about that. Now, again, we have to understand as we conform to Christ, it also relates uh, to the stage of, of life that he passed through. Uh, we know that when he was born uh, into this world, was he born in a, in a palace? In a manger, in a humble way. And uh, that's how he came. But he had to come that way before God finally would exalt him. And he had to pass through those different areas, I mean, stages of his walk with God. Now, again, he was God. He is perfect. He is the Son of God. But we also understand he's the head of the church. And the Bible is very clear. Jesus, Jesus was very clear about this as well, that those that are part of the church resemble the one who is our head, Jesus Christ. We are to resemble him. And so the Bible calls upon us to endure sufferings uh, before we uh, enter the promised glory. Uh, Jesus said if we suffer with him, we will also do what? Reign with him. So it is a process. So if you walk with God, if you claim Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you live like he's your Savior, and it shows in your life, you can, you can write this down, you will experience some opposition. You will have time till you'll be persecuted, even hated, some affliction. And we do that because we know. Paul said what the light affliction that he had suffered, and I can't even compare myself to Paul. But Paul said the light affliction that he suffered here don't compare to the glory there. So we've got to keep our eyes on heaven. And that's why we endure those sufferings. Let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 10. Hebrews 2, verse 10. Anybody got it? Thank you, Alan. Who's the captain of our salvation? Jesus is. Did he suffer? Yes. Now, we know that he was perfect in every way. But... Until he became flesh, and hear me well, had he ever experienced suffering? No. 
He had to become flesh to experience suffering. And the Bible says that he was tempted in all points as we are, except without sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. But yet, he was tempted. So, you know, the writer of Hebrews reminds us he's the captain of our salvation, and he was made complete through his suffering while he was here on this earth. And the same is true for us. We are to follow the captain of our salvation because he is our perfect example. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Second, two, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. What's that verse telling us? You see the links here? And of course, Paul said, this is a faithful saying. You've heard it before. This is a trustworthy saying. It's a true saying. If we die with him, we'll live with him. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. But what if we deny him? He will deny us. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty clear. That is pretty clear. And the... Way it's laid out here, the order is inescapable. The will be, we have to die out to ourselves. That's been part of our text in Matthew for several weeks now. But we will live with him. We have to suffer with him. We will reign with him. But if we don't deny ourselves and choose to not deny him, he will deny us. Second Corinthians 4, look at verse 10. Thank you, Dan. Apostle Paul is writing this. And Paul, of course, writing initially to the church at Corinth, he makes a statement that is very true, that he was always bearing about in his body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the, the, the order here. It wasn't to glorify Paul. To glorify who? Jesus. That the life of Jesus would be manifest in the body of believers, and here in Paul himself. Now, it's interesting, the Apostle Paul also, when he wrote the Church of Corinth, he reminded them that the treasure we have is in earthen vessels. What does that mean? Yes, it's fragile. Very very fragile. He has committed the message of salvation to fragile people. Merely clay jars. And God did that that he might demonstrate his surpassing glory. Paul says, I bear the marks of Christ in my body. And, of course, Paul also learned this lesson when he prayed that God would remove the thorn in his flesh. Because it's only when we understand and recognize our weaknesses. When we recognize we can do what? On our own? Nothing. Only then can God work in marvelous ways in our life. We have to depend upon him. And our example is the Lord Jesus Christ. He had all the glories of heaven. He had all of his power and its privilege. And he laid that aside to suffer humiliation, to endure insults, and to finally die. Now think about that. Can you imagine the one who insulted Christ while he was on this earth? What could Jesus have done about it if he wanted to? Yeah, right there. Now, I would pray they've repented of that before they left this world, because if they didn't, they'll stand in judgment for that. But he did all of that. And it's also interesting, 
Jesus said, no man can take my life except what? Except I lay it down. Thank you, Dan. If I don't lay it down, they cannot take it. And we can't miss the importance of these truths. Because not only are they an example or a pattern for us to meditate on, but also to encourage us and to influence us every day in our walk to die to sin and live to Christ. And how long does that process last? Until when? Until we die, until we get to heaven. I think I may have put it in your notes from last week. I think, yeah, well, there it is. Um, the putting the death of our old self is mortification. Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 20. Thank you. And we know the Apostle Paul is writing here. And he says, I am crucified with Christ. What does that mean? What's Paul telling us? Okay, just as Christ died, Paul says, I've died to myself. When Christ died, I died. Now, by the way, that's spiritual baptism. When Christ died for us, we died. But then Paul makes sure we understand, yet he still lives. But then he qualifies us that it's not me living, it's Christ living in me. And so even though he's still living in the flesh, he said, I now live that life, not in my own way, but by the faith of Jesus and the Son of God, who loved me and died in my place. That's mortification. Dying out to self. Another old theological term is vivification. Now, hold on. Paul said, I am crucified, yet I live. Not I, but Christ in me. That's a life which I now live in the flesh. So if Paul is talking about a life he now lives in the flesh, there had to be what? A life he used to live in the flesh. And Paul was religious all of his life. You know his credentials. And yet he realized all that he did was a failure. Because he was trying to live it on his own. But now that, now that Christ has come, he realizes, I can't do that. That's how I used to live, and it failed. It wasn't working. So Paul says, now the life that I live, I live by the faith of Jesus Christ. So what that means is, now this vivification, if I can say it, is the fact that we have the strength and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live a life that's righteous and holy and pleases God. So I like what Paul says. What I used to do wasn't working for me. And, you know, we can't even imagine. But you know the story of the Apostle Paul. He was there when they stoned Stephen. Isn't that true? In fact, he held some of their garments while they warmed up through those stones. But how many know that was something that Paul never forgot? Because I'm convinced in my own heart, don't you take this to the bank, that Paul realized Stephen had something he didn't. After all those years of keeping the law, all those years of being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, 
Paul never forgot what he saw in Stephen. And so Paul realized one day, what I'm doing is not working. I need something different. The other night when I was witnessing to my dad, and you know, you ever try to argue with a rock? With a mouth? <laughs> Would you wave at me, Anna? Did you wave your arm at me when I said that? <laughs> I, mean, I was kidding you, Anna. Now, listen to me. I told my dad, I said, Dad, all I can tell you is what I've got is working for me. What you've got is not working for you. And that's where Paul was. And he realized that's how he used to live. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3 of Philippians. As I mentioned, Paul's writing. What's he wanting? What's Paul wanting? To know more about the law? Yeah, I want to know, I want to know more about you. I want to know everything about you, Lord. I want to know the power of your resurrection. But he also went a step farther, and I, I just blows my mind. He said, I also want to know the fellowship of your suffering. To the point that my life is even being conformed to your death. I want to die out to myself and all those things in my past life. And I want to know you. I want to know you. So we have to die to sin. The same way Jesus died for us. And he also ascended to, back to heaven. He sits on the right hand of the Father. Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 20. Thank you, Phyllis. Another word for conversation would be citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that's where we're looking for the Savior. And who is the Savior? Jesus Christ, the Lord. While there are some things we cannot imitate, we talked about those. There are things that he represented in the life that he lived for us that we need to imitate with everything we have. Number one, the purity of holiness of his life. Now remember, he lived the way he did for our example. He gave us a pattern to imitate. First John 3, verse 3. So John says, if we have the hope of Christ in us, how does that affect us? What do we what do? We, do? we purify ourselves. Why? Because he's pure. He set that example. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's important to know the areas of Christ where it's totally beyond our imitation. But it's also important to know the things we need to imitate. Now, first of all, Jesus was essentially holy in his being. Now, let me, let me camp here for a moment. When Christ was born into this world, how long did it take for him to become holy? He was born holy. Part of his essence. He was essentially holy in his being. Well, let's read Luke 135. Are you in Luke 135? Do I have the right verse? Luke chapter 1, verse 35. 
Yes. Thank you, Phyllis. The angel tells Mary without a doubt, that holy thing which will be born of you. He is essentially holy. He entered this wicked world pure from the smallest stain of pollution. He's absolutely holy. Now, we, we, we had to, he was born that way. We are in the process of becoming holy. And it's a lifelong process. But the second thing is, not only was he essentially holy, he was effectually holy. Because only Christ can make other people holy. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. Thank you, Dan. Because of his suffering, because of his blood, there was an open fountain. And that fountain was for our sins and for our uncleanness. He's able to make us holy. So he's essentially holy. He's effectively holy. <laughs> he's also infinitely holy. So my question is, how holy is he? Holy, holy, holy. We know that. Yes. And we could, we keep repeating those holies for how, how long? Yeah, forever. And we still don't reach to the degree of his holiness. Perfect, complete in his holiness. And by the way, this also applies to his holiness as our mediator. You remember the requirement for the Passover when they chose a sheep or a goat. Could they bring one with a, bro- with a broken leg? No. Had to be what? Okay. Let's be honest. There'd be times it wouldn't be, and they wouldn't even know it. There'd be some kind of blemish. What kind of blemish did Jesus have? None. He was absolutely perfect. John chapter 3, verse 34. Thank you. So when we're trying to be as holy as it, we can't reach that goal in this life. When we think about the extent of his holiness, in fact, John's very clear. God didn't give Jesus just a portion of the Spirit. He's God. Complete. So in those areas, we can't, we can't go to that degree. We can't imitate that, that far. But even when we consider these exceptions, his holiness is still a pattern for us. It ought to be a goal we set in our lives. And, and, and by the way, Christ was sincerely holy. He was truly holy. In John 14, Jesus speaks about Satan. And you think Satan tried to find a fault in Christ? Hey, you know he did. John 14, 30. Anybody got it? Think about that. Think about that, folks. You think Jesus is afraid of Satan? No. In Zechariah, in the Old Testament, chapter 3, Joshua the high priest, not the one in Moses' day, another Joshua, stands before God, and Satan comes along and accuses him. We don't know what all he said. And God just simply commanded that they 
give him a new cloak, a set of clothes. That's what salvation does for us. The accusations of Zechariah, many may be true, but not one that Jesus endured in his accusations were not true. He was always consistent in his walk with God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Yes. Amen. Who's our example? Jesus is. Okay? Jesus is. Now, again, no matter where he went, Jesus is talking about, no matter what he did, did he ever act or react in, in a way that was less than holy? No. Good for every place, for every time. And it should be in our lives. From the first to the last. But here's the problem. I know we've been born again. I've been born again. God's Spirit lives in me. And yet I've got within me still yet the earthly nature. And one fights against the other. And they're both contrary to each other. And one of them deals with the heavenly, the other deals with the earthly. And that's the struggle we have. But remember, we have the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the power of Christ in us to help us overcome that. John 7, verse 45 and 46. Now, um, even though the Jews were under Roman authority, uh, the Romans allowed them to take care of religious matters, the Jews. And so there would be what we would call today temple police. And, of course, Christ was teaching in the temple, saying things they didn't like. And uh, they sent some police. We want you to go and arrest that man, bringing back to us. So the question is, did they bring him back? No. Why not? Why didn't you bring him back? Now notice something, folks. He didn't, Jesus didn't threaten them. He didn't call angels to circle him. All those policemen did, for lack of a better word right now, they heard him speak. They heard the words that he said. And how much they understood them, we don't know for sure. Or exactly everything they heard, we're not sure about it. But what they heard was unlike what? Anything they'd ever heard before. And I want to tell you, folks, even his speech amazed them, got their attention. So everything he did, everything he said, I mean, look, look how many times the Pharisees or the Sadducees uh, tried to catch him in a debate. And look how many times they kind of sucked their hands in their pocket, turned around and walked away. Because never a man spoke like that man. And no matter who it was that came near him, even those that were sent to arrest him, they went back to the officers and said, hey, we've never heard anybody speak the way this man 
speaks. What respect he had gained. We need to imitate that. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Thank you, Phyllis. Paul, the apostle, is, or is on a missionary journey, and uh, he's in Macedonia, Achaia, and he's amazed. And he commands the church of Thessalonica. He said, you don't maybe realize this, but everywhere we go, people are talking about your faith toward God. It's traveled across this area. In fact... In fact, it has spread so much, we don't have to say a word. People know about the gospel because of how you're living it, how your lives have been changed. So Paul commends these believers at Thessalonica. He says, you're examples to all those in Macedonia and Achaia and everywhere. Christ was also strictly holy. John eight forty six. Thank you, Dan. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in the crowd there. And he's essentially saying to them, which of you here can truthfully, truthfully accuse me of sin? That was his challenge. If any one of you can truthfully accuse me of sin, speak up. What happened? Nobody did. Reminds me of the woman caught in adultery. Brought her to Jesus. <laughs> and each one were carrying stones. And Jesus just simply said, Let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. Can you hear the thuds? And the truth of the matter is, the only one who could have thrown a stone didn't. He was strictly holy. So Jesus says, if you can truthfully accuse me, go on, do it. And friend, make a mistake, they tried. They examined everything that he did. They picked it apart. Tried to find at least a small chink in the armor. And what did they find? Nothing. Nothing. We need to imitate Jesus in that as well. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 15. Yeah, verse 15, chapter 2 of Philippians. Philippians 2, 15, yes. command here is clear. God expects us to be blameless, to be harmless. Bottom line, he expects us to be Christ-like. Well, preacher, what about how wicked the world is? Paul knew that. He said, you're living in the middle of a crooked, perverse world. We know that. But it's no excuse for not 
for us not to live a life that's holy before this world. Second of all, the way that Jesus obeyed God, God's will, is certainly something we need to emulate in our lives. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 5, and then skip down to verse 8. Amen. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. How obedient was he? To what extent? To death. His obedience, it was free. It was voluntary. His obedience was not forced. It was not compulsory. Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. He delights to do the will of God. He delights in that. Christ didn't waver. He prayed one night in the garden. But he ended up, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. John chapter 10, look at verse 17. Jesus willingly laid his life down. And we're to follow his steps. And we're to serve the Lord, not grudgingly. And not saying, oh, how hard this is. If our obedience is to be accepted by God, we must do it willfully and cheerfully even when we don't understand. We talked already about his perfect submission to Gethsemane. And again, that night, was Jesus looking forward to dying? No. But the bottom line is, he didn't balk at it. He didn't refuse not to go through with the plan of God. He was obedient even to the point of death. Yes, he did. Yes. Someone, you know, we can think about that for a moment. And someone might argue, well, Jesus willingly gave his life down because he knew that God was going to raise it again. So no wonder he did that. What about us? If we're a child of God, and the Lord cares and we die, what's he going to do with our body? The same thing, we're going to raise it again. He's the first fruit of the resurrection. Raised to die no more. But the time to get to Acts 21, Paul is back on his way to Jerusalem. He's been warned a couple of times about what waits him there. And look at his his reply in chapter 21 of Acts, verse 13. Acts 21, verse Wow. Now again, they were begging, Paul, don't go. Why why are you going there, Paul? Now, first of all, according to the first half of that verse, did your weeping and begging have any effect at all on Paul? No, wait a minute, don't answer too quick. To a degree it did. Yeah, he said, it broke my heart. 
But not his, not his final determination. Because here's what he says. I'm ready to be tied up, bound. But also, if I have to, I'll do what? I'll die. But hold on. Not because Paul desired to be a martyr. His desire was not to bring glory to himself. He was willing to die, he said, for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, if that's what it takes, so be it. He would also later say, I'm willing to be poured out like a drink offering before God. If that is what it takes. So for Paul to be obedient to Christ was not for his own self-interest. It was entirely for the glory of God. John 17, verse 4. Thank you, Dan. Uh, John 17 is considered by theologians the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, what we call the Lord's Prayer was really just a pattern prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. Here's what he's praying about. And this is just before the crucifixion. And he says, as he prays to his Father, I have glorified you on this earth. He also said, I have finished the work you gave me to do. Now, the actual crucifixion would not take place for several hours. But as far as Christ is concerned, guess what? It's as good as done. It's as good as done. And Jesus tells his Father, I came here to glorify you. And now, just hours before his death, Jesus said, I've done that. I have glorified you. You. He never desired to glorify himself. The great desire of his heart was that his Father be glorified. John 12, verse 28. Wow. This again is a picture of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Son is praying, Father, glorify your name. And God said, I have. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Everything Jesus did was for the glory of God. And that should be a part of our obedience as well. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 4. What's that mean? Are we to be number one? No. And the reason that Christ obeyed the Father like he did was because of the love he had for the Father. And the same ought to be true for us. John 14, verse 31. He's willing to die. I want the world to know that I love the Father. And I'm going to be obedient to the end. And what the commandment he gave me, I am going to carry it out. Now hold on for a minute. If we are big enough, mean enough, and bad enough, we can get some people to obey us, right? Isn't that true? But my question is, what good is loveless obedience? It's no good. It has no value in the sight of God. And the Bible teaches us that the obedience of Jesus Christ, it was constant. Even 
continuing up until his last breath. And one of the last things he said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Romans 2, I'm sorry, Revelation 2, not Romans. Revelation 2, look at verse 10. Thank you, Dan. Again, Jesus addressing the seven churches here in Revelation, the first three chapters. And he realized that there are some of them are going to be persecuted. And the command is, the admonition is, be faithful how long? Till how long, though? Till death. Even if it costs you your life, God says, be faithful. So again, my question is how, to what extent was Jesus faithful? Till when? Till he died. We need to imitate him. Well, we've got a few more of those to cover next week. As we continue to look at Jesus Christ, our perfect example. 